This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a year-long investigation by a consortium of media outlets, and that includes Global News. And that investigation has shown substantial failures by the federal government when it comes to ensuring access to clean drinking water for First Nations right across this country. Why does this remain such a problem, even though we have talked and talked and talked about this? Well, new this morning, we're learning about the people responsible for building and maintaining those critical systems and the way they're compensated. Global News Halifax reporter Elizabeth McSheffrey joins us now with more. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm fascinated by this topic. So tell me, what have we learned about the people responsible for maintaining these systems? We've we've interviewed water operators and water treatment staff uh, from 122 First Nations from coast to coast. And what we've learned is that so many of them are chronically overworked and underpaid. And that's especially when compared with people who hold the same level of certification and do exactly the same job, uh, you know, but often in non-Indigenous communities. So of those folks that we surveyed, you know, for example, we found two thirds of them were earning less than the median wage of other operators in their province. Uh, We found about 36% were earning less than what the federal government estimates is the very lowest wage for their profession in their province. And about 7% reported making less than $14 an hour. And that's, you know, for a lot of them, while they're working full-time on call seven days a week with no one to replace them if, if something goes wrong. So how has this been allowed to happen, Elizabeth, then, from the investigation looking into this? Is, is there some things that have led to this situation? That's a really complicated question. There's a lot of factors at play here, but I think the important one to point out is uh, the federal policy when it comes to the budgets for, for managing water treatment infrastructure. So the federal government uses a funding formula to divvy out the operations and management budgets, uh, and that formula hasn't actually been updated since 1998. Um, and we know from the documents we've gotten from government that, uh, you know, the Indigenous Services Canada Department has known for years that it's underfunding these budgets by hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so First Nations are, you know, put in a really tough situation because the pot of money that pays for their water treatment plants and their operator salary is the same pot of money that also pays for their roads, their upgrades, their other, you know, the other infrastructure in the community. So they end up in this position where they have to choose where they're spending their money. 
uh, and water operator salaries are a part of that equation. Um, so it's, it's a really tough position that First Nations are, you know, they feel, some of them say they feel cornered in a way. Wow. Okay. And so despite all the talk, right, because we know that governments have talked a big talk about this issue, has any progress been made in recent years? Well, I, I, you know, I think we have to point out that the federal government has certainly stepped up the amount of funding that it's dedicating to this cause. Uh, you know, in budget 2019, they increased their funding for operations and man, uh, maintenance. Uh, in t- budget 2020, they increased their funding as well. In December, they, you know, added $1.5 billion uh, to the cause of ensuring safe drinking water in communities. Uh, and they have, you know, dedicated themselves to creating a new funding formula that's going to, that's going to, you know, make it easier for First Nations to actually get budgets that meet their real needs on the ground. Uh, but, you know, it's it's still up in the air how long it's going to take for all that funding and a new formula to actually trickle down and improve the real life circumstances of some of the operators that we spoke to. All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate that. That's Elizabeth McSheffrey. She's with Global News Halifax. This new piece all about this, you can find online at globalnews.ca this morning. But essentially, it's a year-long investigation uh, by a consortium of media outlets. Global News is one of them that shows substantial failures by the federal government when it comes to ensuring access to clean drinking water. That is not something that should be happening in this day and age in this country. This is Mornings with Simi. I've had an avalanche of testimonies, not only from consumers, but from people in the dairy industry. And some of the information that I received were quite troubling. That is the head of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Sylvain Charlebois. A lot of people have been reaching out to us to talk about this over the weekend. We spoke to Professor Charlebois on Friday morning. I heard This is all I heard about, actually, in emails from people all weekend long. The consensus is that, one, they think, okay, I'm not crazy. My butter isn't as soft at room temperature as it used to be. So let's talk to someone to hopefully get some more answers on this. Daniel Lefebvre is with us now, the CEO of Lactinet. That's an organization that works with all levels of the dairy industry in Canada. Daniel, thank you for being here. Good morning. Have you been hearing about this problem? Yes, yes, that's been, uh, as, as you said, that's been in the, in the media and on social media quite a bit. Uh, and uh, we, we've uh, been, been uh, asked many times questions about uh, what our take is on, on the issue. Well, what is your take on the issue? Well, uh, I think I think there's a, there's a lot of, of talk and not a lot of, of data and a lot of not a lot of science beside, behind this. Uh, first of all, it's been known for for generation that the, the consistency of butter changes through the seasons, and that is indeed mostly due to the change in, in cow feeding and and uh, what we call the fatty acid profile of the milk that is uh, ensuing from these changes in feeding. Uh, Milk fat is made of of hundreds of different fatty acids. Uh, some of them are made by the cow herself, and some of them are uh, the, the, the 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 fatty acids that she, she absorbs from her from her feet. And in the summer, when uh, cows are fed uh, are fed more fresh grass, either on pasture or freshly uh, harvested forages, there is more unsaturated fatty acids, and those make 
butter softer. And again, that, that's been known for, for, for generations. Right. Okay. But clearly people have noticed something more recently than that. So from what you've heard from dairy farmers, has something changed about what they are feeding their cattle? Uh, not, not, nothing significant in the last, in, in certainly in the short term in the last year. Uh, a lot, a lot of, you'd hear a lot of about, uh, palm oil. And, and I put that in, in uh, quotation marks because it's not exactly palm oil, but some pa- palm oil-derived supplements uh, have been fed in, uh, in cows' uh, diets for, again, for, for decades. Uh, and, uh, but we've, we've monitored the uh, effect of feeding palm, uh, those palm-derived uh, products in cow, uh, in cow feed, and we haven't seen a, a significant change in the fatty acid profile from uh, from this change. Right. So then, but given the fact that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of chatter about this right now on social media and in the media, is this something that is going to get investigated further? Uh, yes, I know of one uh, research project that's going to look into uh, more systematically or more uh, or more in depth into the pro- into this uh, this issue, uh, looking at the direct effect of uh, of feeding palm products on uh, processing abilities of milk. But uh, as I said, from from the analytical standpoint, looking at the fatty acid profile of milk this year versus say last year. We haven't seen any change that would indicate that there is a reason to believe that uh, this has caused a change in the, the butter consistency. Right. Uh, the, the, uh, are there concerns from dairy farmers on this, though, Daniel? Because they sure are in the news. Uh, for sure, there's there's concern uh, that that this might affect the uh, the the image and uh, of uh, of dairy products, but uh, and, and that that's that's troubling or concerning. Uh, but again, this is uh, this is not based on any uh, hard data. Right. Okay. So, what are the next steps here then to le- try and learn more about this? Like, obviously, I would imagine that if you're a dairy farmer, you'd want to reassure the public here, right? Yeah. Well, first, let's let's make things clear that uh, th- this is nothing. Well, not only nothing new, but nothing illegal. This this is an approved. Uh, supplement to cow feed that's been fed for 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 many years. Uh, that, all, that it also is also fed uh, at a very low level, usually mm-hmm. within uh, about one percent of the cow's diet. Uh, and as I mentioned, because there's no change in the fatty acid profile of milk, there's also no reason to believe that uh, there's any harmful uh, impact on uh, on human health. Right. But given the questions, then I, I mean, that's probably not going to be the end of this, right? There'll have to be some more definitive answers. Yeah. So, uh, the, as I said, there's, there's one uh, research project that was approved for funding uh, earlier last fall, and that will start uh, soon by uh, Laval University in, in Quebec. And uh, I understand that the uh, Dairy Farmers of Canada has uh, assembled uh, a task force including uh, uh, consumers, um, uh, processors, uh, and experts in the field to, uh, to come up with the appropriate response. All right, we'll be hearing more about it. Daniel, thank you for your time this morning. 
You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Daniel Lefebvre. He's the CEO of Lactinet. That's an organization that works with all levels of the dairy industry in Canada. And as you heard, yes, they know the chatter. They know what people are saying. They know what's going on out there. But there's more investigation to come about has something changed in our butter? A lot of people feel that something has, right? Is it this palm oil derivative that some dairy farmers are now feeding to their cows? Is that what has changed? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. I know dairy farmers would like an explanation on this too, if not just to reassure the public. So I think there'll be more information on that coming for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about tax season. It is upon us. This year is a little bit different because of the pandemic. There are some different exemptions and some things that you need to, you know, be concerned about this year because there might be some working from home benefits. There could be deferred payments on CERB income. So we thought, let's figure this all out this morning. Joining us is Peggy Sang, who's a senior business tax analyst at TurboTax. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Are there things do you think Canadians don't realize that have changed about their taxes this year? Um, there hasn't been a significant amount of changes this year from a tax perspective. I think, though, for many Canadians, because their life situation has changed, that that will have an impact on their taxes. All right. I mean, this year, Let's start with some of the big ones. Mm-hmm. So this year, a lot of people started working from home. So that's a huge one that probably applies to probably 90% of the Canadians. Um, so this year, the CRA actually has come up with a method, the flat rate method for, to help with some of those work from home expenses, for example. Okay, so there are there tax credits then that come with that? So this is uh, uh, more of a deduction, a deduction against employment income. So uh, prior to this, if you were working from home, then, you know, there's like, you know, the t that needs to be filled out is fairly complicated, fairly complex. So instead of this, they decided that, oh, the CRA decided that, you know, we're going to have the flat rate. So you can claim up to $400 this year. And some of the eligibility criteria for this is that you have to be working from home due to COVID. And even if you chose to work from home, so you're not required to work from home, then, you know, you meet that criteria. And then another thing that people need to realize is that you have to be working from home for more than 50% of the time and that you have to have a period of working from home for at least four weeks. And so this will allow you to claim office expenses or if you're claiming the flat rate method, it's just basically $2 for every day that you're working from home. Okay. And so they've made that a lot easier then than in other yes. years. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the deadlines people need to know for this tax season? So, so today is the first day for NetFile, which is NetFile Open. So a lot of people will be filing today because they're waiting for their refund. Um, but they have, the CRA hasn't decided to extend the tax deadline, which is, you know, the usual April 30th. So people need to know that, you know, you need to pay your tax debts on April 30th. But just because you need to pay doesn't mean that you don't file, you, can, you can't file earlier. So that's something that people generally confuse that, oh, I have to pay on the day I file, which is not the case. And I know that this year, a lot of people may be owing taxes because maybe they did get the CERB or the CRB. And so that's why it's really important for them to understand that, okay, I need to file my taxes to understand what that tax set, how much that is, because then they can plan for it. Because, you know, not it could be like, you know, a few thousand dollars. And I know a lot of people may not have a few thousand dollars around to, you know, just pay that debt off right away. Right. But they can defer some of that, right? Like, don't they have time to pay this back? 
Yes, that's right. So on February 9th, the government actually made an announcement because they know that this could be, you know, a significant debt for some people. And generally, when you're receiving government benefit, they don't withhold enough taxes so that people are surprised at the end. You know, even if you were re- re- uh, receiving parental leave, you know, type of type of benefits, you may not actually have enough um, taxes withheld so that you can actually pay the tax debt. So on February 9th, the government announced that the, the tax debt owing, if you had received CERB or such uh, similar type of government benefits, and you were you, you had a taxable income of less seventy five thousand dollars or less. Then for those type of people, and it's automatic, where there will be no interest applied up for a whole entire year. So from April thirtieth of this year to April thirtieth of next year, there will be no interest applied. Okay, so that's all good news for people. Then um, I, I would assume then, Pecky, that some people just they you know they make some mistakes, right, when they file their own taxes. What are some of the more common ones? I think some of the common ones is that um, people generally, <laughs> so this has actually just happened over the weekend, a friend called call me and said, oh, my spouse is getting you know, a significant in, uh, refund back this year. I was like, oh, did your, did your income significantly change or did you like, you know, have more taxes? I was like, no, no, my situation hasn't really changed. And yet they're receiving a... Um, I was like, no, that is, you know, that can't be. <laughs> you have to be the killjoy on that one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And especially considering this year that there isn't really that many changes. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And so for me, that's like a red flag. If you're, if you're like, you know, if you have a significant refund or if you have to significantly owe an amount, that's also a red flag. And that's when you kind of want to like see what did you, what did I do last year or what did I do this year? But, and that's also like, you know, I tell people, you know, if you have significant life changes, like, you know, especially this year, we know at TurboTax that a lot of people, Canadians are going to have want help this year because there's, you know, they may be receiving a new slip or they may have to re- uh, because of CERB or right. they may have to fill out a new form. Then that's when you should be calling an expert. So we've actually hired three times more experts this year because we're expecting an, a huge amount of Canadians yeah. that want help. I can and imagine so, that for sure. Uh, listen, Pecky, thank you yeah. so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, great. Thank you. Have a good day. That's Pecky Sang, who's the Senior Business Tax Analyst at TurboTax. Uh, Yeah, they've had to hire people. No doubt they have. There's going to be some things that are different this year. The government's made it easier for you to claim a work-from-home tax credit. You can defer the amount owing on CERB payments if you're one of the people who does owe money on that. So yeah, it's going to be a bit of a different tax season and it does kind of officially kick off today. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, well, let's talk about the state of our economy. There are more border restrictions, right, that are staying in place. No cruise ship season. There's just a lot of factors that show us that it's not going to be just a simple back to normal anytime soon. Some industries are going to take years to recover, which is one of the reasons why the federal government has announced some new COVID-19 benefits, some extensions. Joining us now is Hassan Youssef, who's president of the Canadian Labour Congress. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Uh, good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. So do you think the support currently provided by the federal government is enough, or do people need more? Well, I think what it, this announcement uh, accomplishes, obviously, it takes the stress out of people whose benefits were about to expire to knowing fully well they will be covered uh, going forward. Of course, um, as time goes on, if the economy does not return, of course, the government will have to relook again 
uh, to see how long they want to extend these benefits. And based on the job numbers we saw in January, and I think the ones we will see again in February, I think the job market is going to be completely flat, if not uh, lost. We've lost some more jobs. So I think the government has done the right thing uh, now. And more importantly, of course, uh, they will have to be pragmatic about how we continue to adjust as we move forward. What kind of adjustments do you think we're going to need? Well, I think these uh, no, uh, uh, benefit extension that they have provided, uh, uh, the announced on Friday, the sick benefits, which is going to be, of course, extended, the care giving benefits and the Canada recovery benefits. And of course, EI benefits is also that's been extended will ensure everybody that's currently receiving a benefit obviously will know that that will be there. The bigger challenge is going to be, of course, um, if the pandemic uh, continues, of course, and the job numbers remain flat, of course, the government is going to have to extend these benefits uh, one more time as vaccines starting to roll. I think, of course, some sectors will start uh, recovering. Uh, retail, hospitality, the airline sector is going to be some time yet, I think. But um, I think there's a good chance that retail could starting to pick up again if, if uh, malls and stores start to open. But again, it, it's hard to really predict uh, how long this is going to take. So for now, I think for many workers, and there's millions of them whose benefit was about to expire, I think it's good news, uh, brings some relief. But ultimately, of course, what we would like to see in the long term, the upcoming budget is an indication the government is taking this seriously and hopefully planning. Should they be need for an extension, they're prepared to do so uh, going forward. Is is there a point, do you think, Hassan, that uh, we have to talk about perhaps not everything is going to go back to normal and we're going to need to maybe retrain workers or think about other industries? Well, I do believe that that's a, uh, an issue that should uh, be addressed in the upcoming budget. I think there's certainly, I think in the service sector, a lot of the restaurants and some businesses have closed. It's not likely to come back. And those workers are going to need uh, both financial support, but equally need an opportunity to training. And the government is going to have to take a hard look how we can provide that training for those workers and equally provide them uh, assistance at a time if they're going to go back to school. I think it will be the right thing to do, recognizing that some may have made the decision already. They would like to change career path, but they will need the support to, to accomplish that. So I think that's going to be obviously a decision the government will have to wrestle with the upcoming uh, budget. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yeah, let me extend again a sincere thanks to the minister. I know she's going to be on. Uh, her her diligence and, and leadership is uh, worth the praise for what she has done here. And I really want to thank her for her leadership and recognizing how much stress she's taken out of workers' lives by making these announcements early in the game. Thank All you right. so much. Well, thank you. That's Hassan Youssef, who's the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been talking about, the federal government is extending COVID-19 emergency benefits, mainly because, as we know, job numbers across the country have kind of weakened over the past few months. Have a listen. We are extending the Canada Recovery Benefit and the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit by 12 weeks. That makes the new maximum you can claim 38 weeks in total. If you need support while you look for a job, or if you have to stay home to take care of your family, these benefits will continue to be there for you. We're also extending the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit from the current two weeks to a new total of four weeks. No one should be going to work sick right now. It's that simple. And finally, we are increasing the help available under regular EI claims to 50 weeks in total,
meaning 24 more weeks that you can use if you need it. It's Prime Minister Trudeau there. So is this money going to all the right places? And big question, is it going to be enough? Talking to us now is Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. Thank you for being back with us. Good morning. Is this going to be enough? Is there a point where the government says, okay, we'll take another look at this? Well, really important question. So our plan has always been to adjust as needed. We've really monitored closely labor market conditions. We saw, as as you just reported, um, significant job loss in January, unemployment's back at 9.4%. And we're still, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, happy to see the numbers heading where they're heading in terms of um, COVID cases, but there's still a lot of Canadians out of work. And by the end of March, around 700,000 people will have exhausted the recovery benefit or EI. So we've taken the decision to add 12 weeks to the recovery benefits and add up to 24 weeks to EI. Okay, is it is the system more flexible now, do you think as well? Because if a province goes into lockdown rather suddenly, which it can do that, uh, then people are out of a job again. Is there a flexibility for that person to go back to the system? Absolutely. Thanks for asking that. It's really important. We tried and we tried and we think we learned from CERB that we had to be flexible, that we had to we had to add elements into the recovery benefit, even in the law in September. So we could add weeks if necessary so we could reorient our support where it was needed most to respond to um, regional labor market realities. Certainly they're living a different experience in Ontario and Quebec than we are in here in B.C. And so obviously more people are accessing these benefits out east. Okay, so do you foresee a time, though, where there's going to be a line drawn in the sand? Like, how long can the federal government offer this kind of support? Well, we're tracking very closely, obviously, the vaccine distribution, how many people are vaccinated. We think that's going to have a significant impact on labor market conditions going into, you know, May, June, July. Our other measures are our wage subsidy and the business account um, currently you know come to a conclusion in june so we have now aligned the recovery benefit with those measures so that in april and may we can look at the conditions as they are then and decide what we need to do if anything moving forward after june well you know we didn't want to keep you know giving canadians two weeks and four weeks and another four weeks and another because we're, we're trying to make the runway a little longer to add some certainty so people can plan and predict the support um, that they're going to get Right. But I know that there are businesses as well who are trying to hire people. They're finding it difficult as well. Uh, so, and you know, some of the, and I get emails from businesses that say this, that they're concerned that perhaps with all the federal government support, there's not enough incentive yet for people to look for a different job. Have you heard that? I have, and certainly we heard it with the CERB. We tried to correct some of the disincentivizing concern, or address those concerns, the way we we modeled the CRB be a lot closely after EI, so people have to be looking for work, they have to prove they're looking for work, they can't have quit a job and collect this benefit. But quite frankly, from the evidence from last year's labor market data shows that when people, when, when there is work available, people take these jobs. Um, Canadians want to work, and I think that there's this assumption that's too broad, and I'm 
I'm not saying this applies to everyone, that if we provide more support or benefits, somehow Canadians will take advantage of that and choose not to work. When the evidence shows that people want to work, um, but your point is super valid. You know, we are very motivated to get Canadians into jobs. That's why we're investing in training. That's why we're investing in job creation. That's why we want people to use the wage subsidy. We would absolutely prefer that people be working. This is for the situation where that's not possible, but we are highly motivated to get people into the job market. Okay, so what do people need to know then about this latest announcement? Um, We're adding 12 weeks onto the CRB and the caregiver benefits, so you can claim up to 38 weeks instead of 26, and we're adding up to 24 weeks to EI. So, of course, EI has a flexible benefit duration, so you may be in a situation where historically you would have got 26 weeks, now you can get 50, but you also may be in a situation where historically you would have got 45 weeks, now you can get 50. So, it, it, it adds a different number of weeks depending on what you would have been entitled to were we not in a pandemic. On, on the EI side. And for the sickness benefits, we're doubling it from two weeks to four weeks. So you can access four weeks of paid sick leave from the federal government. All right, Minister Qualtro, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Nice speaking with you. Appreciate that. That is Carla Qualtro, Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, talking about the money that will now be extended for these programs for Canadians, whether it's employment insurance, the Canada Recovery Benefit or the Sickness Benefit. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It is a big concern. More cases of the B117 variant of COVID-19 first identified in the UK, have been found in Surrey schools. This is the strain that is believed to be more contagious, right? And epidemiologists warn that it could spread far more rapidly if we start to see more cases of this. That's why teachers and administrators are saying they want some action from the province and they want it now. Joining us now is Surrey Teachers Association President Matt Westfall. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Simi. This must be very concerning. You must be hearing from a lot of teachers in Surrey at this point. I definitely am. People are really concerned because the overall trend has been far more exposures anyways. And now that there's variants at play, people are really not feeling very safe for themselves and their students in schools. It, does it vary school by school? Like we've heard of some problems at, say, Lena Shaw Elementary, like that there's a lot of people in isolation there. That's, that's correct. And there is, even within Surrey, which has been hard hit, there's wide variation. We still have some schools that have had no exposures and other ones that have had very many. And we think that points to a need to actually allow school districts to have different sets of rules and make them stricter at the schools that are harder hit instead of one set of rules for the whole province. Yeah, is that how it is right now then? Maybe you could explain to people, is it what, what holds schools back from imposing some harder rules? Uh, the thing that holds schools back is the provincial health officer and the Ministry of Education who have created one set of rules for the whole province 
And when I speak to school district management, they say they do not, we say you should require masks in all classrooms. And they say we can't because Dr. Henry won't allow it. Uh, And similarly to reducing density. So at schools such as ones that have been hit this weekend, we would like to see them, okay, not have as many students in the school, at least until spring break. They say we just can't do it. Our hands are tied on that. We would like to see them have that kind of flexibility. Do you think this variant will change things then? Is this the way to get the message through with this happening now? Well, I I hate that it's happening this way, but it might be because I I really worry that if we don't take decisive action now, we may find that it's too late to get the variant under control. So what is happening in these schools then, Matt? Is it just, is it too much mingling? Is it happening outside of school and they're bringing it to school? What's going on? Uh, I, I think the biggest part is what's happening in the, uh, the community around the school. Uh, so where there's more cases in the community, you will see them show up in the school. Uh, with, but the other big problem in Syria is crowding because we're a very crowded district, rapidly growing, not enough schools. So it's simply not possible to have physical distancing uh, in, in any classroom that I'm aware of. And then if you add to that in elementary schools, students are not required to wear masks in the classroom at all. And many of them don't. Even if the teacher wants them to? That's right. They, they, the teacher can't require it. We do our best to encourage you know, and create a culture of mask wearing. But ultimate push comes to shove. We, a student can't be compelled to wear a mask in the classroom. Right. Is this about it's the... For elementary. Right. Is student, is, Matt, is this about the students, though, or is this about the parents? Because if teachers were to communicate that to parents, wouldn't parents say, okay, fine, my child can wear a mask? You, you would think so, but not entirely. I mean, not all parents support wearing masks, and not all students want to do it. So, uh, you know, we, we do the best we can, but without a firm mandate... Uh, there's not much, it's difficult to do more. So I, I would imagine that you've talked to the BCTF about this. Is this, is there going to be more discussion with the provincial government? Absolutely. We're seeking a meeting with uh, Minister Whiteside and we also at the provincial steering committee work through these issues as well. Saying we d- let's make them stricter. It, the last move on masks was to say, to no longer say that for elementary school, they're not recommended, which was a big obstacle. But still, we think it's high time and overdue to move past that and require them for elementary. See, but Matt, I guess the thing is here, those are just more meetings, right? And if you're a teacher, if you're a student, this thing, these variants are are more contagious. Are we we missing the boat here? I worry that we are. Uh, School districts need to be given the power to move more quickly. Uh, Even if the health authority doesn't order a school closed, maybe the school district needs to be able to do that if they see the trend in the cases. We really, the current system is not moving quickly enough. What are some of the harder hit schools and areas out that way? Uh, Harder hit schools, uh, a lot of the area schools in the Newton area, so Frankfurt Secondary, Tamanois, which was one of the ones announced with a variant, Uh, Cambridge and Newton Elementary, which had to shut down, Lena Shaw. So areas in the north in Newton, but also in South Surrey, there's really no... No area of the school district that hasn't been touched in some way. So are, are some schools, are you able, are they able to even stay open? You mentioned Lena Shaw there. We'd heard that 29 staff were in isolation at Lena Shaw. How do you keep a school open at that point? Well, it's pretty challenging. At a certain point, the school isn't really functional, even if they don't know if it's transmitting at the school. Although, what are the chances that it's not, frankly? Uh, yeah, we think it probably does need to be shut down, frankly. And this has happened some other places. It's, it's just fun- not functional anymore because people don't want to go there. Teachers teaching on call or relief EAs don't want to go. 
So what is your message to parents at this point, Matt? Our message to parents is have your child wear a mask. Whether it's required or not, tell them they need to wear it. And we put out videos in different languages aimed at the community to send that message about what, what they can do to make schools safe. Because if the province won't act on that, we're, we're trying to communicate directly to the community. Right. Is that having, do you think, any impact? Uh, I think we'll, we just rolled them out last week, so we'll see. And we're expanding the number of languages. We have Punjabi, English, Mandarin, but we're going to have a range of other languages as well. Right. But in the meantime, though, like we're talking about some very contagious variants here. So um, your message then would be just everybody play it safe. Absolutely. And if anyone is sick, do not go to the school. You know, they just and you simply follow the, the guidelines about not going with any symptoms. Wait a minute. Are really people vital. doing that, though? Are people going even though they have some symptoms? That still happens sometimes. And uh, it, it, where students have to be sent home and they really shouldn't have been at school in the first place. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, Matt. Really? After all this? Yes, it still happens. It was routine before, but even now. I mean, parents may not have childcare. They have to work. We understand they're struggling, but they've got to find another way. All right, Matt, thank you very much for your time. And listen, good luck. Thank you very much, Simi. Matt Westfall is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. They have big concerns, as you can understand. Uh, too many schools in Surrey that are showing uh, an exposure to the variant of COVID-19 that is much more contagious. This is the thing that, you know, health officials are really worried about. So, you know, teachers there are calling for more flexibility in being able to, you know, say, listen, you got to wear masks or, you know, got to be careful, shut down that school and go online for the next couple of weeks, that we are at a very critical time here. Now, if you're a parent out that way, what is going on? Like, how are kids going to school with symptoms? What's going on in the community that there's still too much socializing that these cases are even showing up again? And are you concerned? This is Mornings with Simi. What would you do? I mean, what would you do if your child were put in harm's way? I mean, that's every parent's nightmare. But how would you respond to the person responsible to that? We're going to talk to our next guest about it. Aaron Johnson is a father, lives over on Vancouver Island with his three kids, and he joins us now to talk about what happened to him and his family last week. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you, Simi. Okay, so you were at the convenience store. You had a child. How old is your child that was still in the car? Uh, he was eight. Okay, and what happened? Yeah, so me and me and my son, uh, my oldest son, went into the shell and got some PS4 cards for them for helping me with chores, like I kind of do on a, on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, I've done it many times before. You know, I, I moved from Vancouver, coming to Sleepy Qualicum, thinking, yeah, you know, and... Um, Ran in, there was no customers. We were just grab the, grab the cards, go to the counter. And then I walk out, and, and Wyatt's running towards me. And, uh, and Dad, a lady took your truck. And, yeah, so I was like, you know. So I, I didn't experience that, that fear and panic as a parent, like where you know, all of a sudden he was missing for two minutes or five right. minutes or however long. So I didn't, he was right there, right? So... Very smart kid, though, right? Because he made enough of a fuss of screaming and yelling in the truck that the person who stole it stopped it and told him to get out. Yes, yes, he did. And then the woman was in quite duress, obviously, from, uh, you know, from, from, from her addiction, right? So, yes. you, know, so, you know, right away, uh, I like, kind of had, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, yeah, it was just quite the story. <laughs> Aaron, so when you found out, 
most people's reaction would be, you know what, I want to throw the book at the person who put my child in danger like that. But that wasn't your reaction. Why? Um, just because, I mean, I've struggled with addiction myself, my, you know, for the majority of my life since I was a teenager. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, I, my wife walked out the door with my kids and, and it was like, I'm not coming back, right? And I, I needed that jarring enough pain for me to be like, you know, I'm done with this, right? Like, I, so I had this immediate compassion for this woman and being like, wow, like, it was only a few years ago that I was there, like, you know, like I was in the yeah. gift of addiction and, and you know, just one human being trying to be compassionate to another, which we seem to lack a lot of these days. And I, awesome. know, I don't know if, if the justice system is the necessary route we got to go. I mean, again, it takes a person's willingness to want to change to... You know, for them to, but I thought I'd maybe give, maybe this could be a wake up call for her. I was hoping. Have you, have you had a chance to talk to her? What have you told the police? Like, do you want to press charges? I'll talk to her parents quite a bit. Um, and, uh, we got her into detox. A friend of mine uh, was was detoxing her, uh, with the help of a doctor and then had lined up, uh, treatment in Vancouver for her. That's amazing. And and, uh, then she left about 24 hours later. Oh. Yeah, you know, you kind of want... I was really hoping it could have been a happy ending to the story, but... But Aaron, I think for a lot of people, it's a happy ending to us because, one, your child's okay, right? Uh, But also that you didn't have the reaction that a lot of people would have, that you reacted with compassion. So even though this isn't the moment that that person is going to take help, do you regret that? No, I don't. I mean, I hope hope she can look back and, and... You know, like, you know, she looked back and, and just, you know, have some semblance of hope that maybe she can change her life. And, you know, again, for me, it took me a lot of years, too. I mean, I, it took me a lot of years of in and out and, and trying to find a new way to live. And finally, it stuck for me. So, I, you know, one of the things I want to do is turn my property in Qualicum Beach into uh, into a uh, a recovery center for people too. And, and, um, you know, I got a beautiful former yoga retreat here and it's beautiful. Want to, want to kind of do, give, you know, give back and be a source of light for other people that are suffering an addiction. We know what's going on right now. And, well, Aaron, I think your story actually already has done that. So that's amazing. And I think you probably inspired other people to react the same way. Yeah, I, I hope so. Right. And, you know, I mean, for me, I, I'd love to get an angel over here helping me do this. I'm just a man with a desire to help others now. And, and, wow. and you know, I got some people on board and, uh, you know, I'd love to have somebody that, you know, kind of, I can't, I don't have all the resources myself right. to do it. But Well, we'll pass the story around, Aaron, and see what happens. But listen, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for opening up the stigma of addiction a bit here. It's nice to, nice to yeah, it is nice to see that. Some there's hope, right? There's some. You're the inspiration out there, Aaron. So thanks so much for your time. That's Aaron Johnson. He's the father over on Vancouver Island. Car got carjacked with his eight year old son inside. The son managed to get out, but Aaron doesn't want to press charges against the person who did this because he said, "Listen, that person's suffering an addiction. They need help. They don't need the justice system." This is mornings with Simi. 
So remember that trivia night, the pub and uh, out in the Tri-Cities area there that got a lot of attention, right? There was something like 50 people there, 15 of them, 15 later tested positive for COVID-19, moved about in the community and spreading it into other places as well. And it looks like it also may have led to an outbreak at a childcare centre at Simon Fraser University, although health officials have yet to officially confirm that. Well, joining us now is Andrew Longhurst, a health researcher and author. His wife and child have now both tested positive. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's good to be with you, Simi. What have you heard about this? Was it that connection to that childcare center there? Sorry, yes. I mean, we heard mainly through the media and through announcements around um, the trivia night that it sounds like that was the link. Um, And obviously that was... Uh, quite upsetting to hear that and and to know that um, you know we have 50 people in a trivia night in a bar bars are open and we're uh, seeding COVID into childcare settings and potentially schools and many other settings um, and yeah it's it's really upsetting yeah there must be a lot of frustration for parents it's been very disruptive and it's been a time of, I think, uh, quite a bit of anxiety. Um, my wife and I and my um, 16-month-old son were, were all healthy, and were, uh, my wife and I are, are fairly young, and um, so we have, we have odds on in our favor uh, in terms of um, not having uh, more severe COVID, um, but I think it's a, it's what makes this disease so scary is it can be so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, age is not the only thing that uh, affects whether you will have more moderate or severe outcomes. And I think the more that we learn about long COVID and the long-term effects, um, both in adults and increasingly in children, uh, I think this is a disease that we need to take very seriously. And frankly, we just don't know yet. And so for that, I, I think no, no parent wants to get the news. Um, that their child has tested positive, and then later my wife. And um, by some miracle, I have not uh, tested positive, and I don't have symptoms at this time. So how are they feeling? Um, They have uh, largely recovered. Um, They had very um, uh, mild symptoms of acute illness. We're very thankful for that. Um, and uh, they are feeling better, and um, we we're, we're still in self isolation. My because I didn't get sick at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think what a lot of people don't know is for families. Guess what I was wondering too, Andrew. Then does this does this show you that the you know the system isn't working for everybody at this point? Yeah, I I think one of the concerns is um, you know we have we have sort of some of these measures that are are leading to a lot of spread. And I think my biggest fear right now, and we know this with the, the cases of the variant in the Surrey school, Surrey schools, I should say, is that um, we have some measures in place that don't appear to be working. And so at a time when we have highly infectious variants spreading in the community, in workplaces, in schools, um, I don't know if the variant is at play uh, in our case of the outbreak at the child care center. I'm very curious to know, um, but we're going to continue to see these issues. And and um, we all, my family, we all went test for testing the day mm-hmm. we learned of the exposure asymptomatically. Um, and we later learned um, that our son had contracted 
COVID um, mm. based on that, but we were not encouraged to go for testing. Really? And so I think, and that's, that is, those are the guidelines at this point in time. And so I think it's really important in these higher risk settings in the context of these variants that we do everything we can to get ahead of the virus. And the, the way that we do that is we test, we test, we test, and we get ahead of the cases before they continue to spread further in the community. All right. And I guess also, Andrew, just very quickly here, you would also like people to be more careful. Absolutely. I and mean, this is a time to to really take those measures seriously. So many of us are making huge sacrifices. We haven't seen, uh, you know, aside from limited contact with, with my son's grandparents, we really haven't seen, we haven't seen anyone in indoor spaces yeah. uh, for a year. But I also think it's a bigger, it's a public policy issue at a certain point where we have um, issues around testing. We need to see more rapid testing in higher risk settings, child mm-hmm. settings, school. We have to ahead of this thing Um, and I don't want I don't want any parent or any family to be in this situation and especially if they have more vulnerable members in their family with comorbidities uh, this has to be taken really seriously you're absolutely right Andrew thank you for your time and listen best of luck okay thank you so much Andrew Longhurst, author, health researcher, dad, husband, his wife, his child. They both have COVID-19 and lots of concerns about where it came from and is the government doing enough? You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, so new travel restrictions come into effect today. And as we've been hearing in the news, several Vancouver hotels have been approved as quarantine destinations. So what do travelers and you need to know out there? Joining us is Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Hi, Claire. Hi there, Simi. Yeah, there is a lot to know, that's for sure. Um, And I actually was working all weekend lots of people been reaching out to me to find out exactly what the details are because they only came out on Friday and at that point they were actually quite limited. So I did take the the liberty of phoning uh, the 1-800 number that is the only way to make this reservation. And um, it was cumbersome and really? it is going to be very, very expensive. Yeah, really. It's um, okay. What we, I found. Can we just back up a little bit here? So if somebody is out of the country traveling, they, they have to phone this 1-800 number? That's right. So uh, as of basically last night at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so midnight Eastern Time, this did come into effect. And when you come fly back into Canada, now keep in mind, no one should be traveling at this time, but there are people who have to do it, say, for work or medical treatments or they you know, they're returning from outside of Canada. So they have to do several things. First of all, the whole process is three COVID tests altogether. The first one, uh, no more than 72 hours prior to getting on the plane coming into Vancouver or one of the other four airports, which include Montreal, Toronto, and Calgary. They also have to make a reservation at a hotel in one of those four cities. So here in Vancouver, there are now five that are listed Um, And you can't call those hotels directly, which is so inconvenient. There is also no online option. So there's a 1-800 number that works from North America. There is a another number that you can call collect outside of North America. But what I recommend, if you've got family overseas and they have to come back, you can actually get their information and make this reservation for them. It'll be so much easier for them. Although they've got really long hours, 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern time, um, that number is 
just absolutely chocker block at the moment. So it would be easier for someone here in North America to make this for them. Um, Do you have the number, been, by the way? We should probably say the number. Yeah, too, right? the number, the 1-800 number from anywhere in North America is 1-800-294-8253. For calling Collect outside of North America, it's 613-830-2997. Now, at the moment, when I phoned, um, the cheapest for a single person was staying at the Fairmont Vancouver Airport, the one that's right attached to the airport. Right. It's going to set people back about $1,635, and that will include the food, the room, the security, the transportation, and the uh, infection prevention and control measures for two people sharing. Now, if you and I were traveling, Semi, and we were in a bubble while we were away, we still could not stay in a hotel together. We would have to get separate rooms. So if you have separate uh, living accommodation here in Canada, you need two rooms. But for two people who are, say, a married couple, it's right. twenty three fifty six, and the Fairmont is still the cheapest. For a family of four, I found that the Weston Wall Centre Vancouver Airport was the cheapest. Family of four means kids 12 and under, just shy of four grand. Thirty nine fifty five. I know, Claire, a lot of people are going to complain about this, but they it's are. Not, I know, but they, they had a lot of notice here, right? And the thing they is, had we about, aren't really supposed to be traveling at this point. No, the, the thing that's really upsetting, though, for people is it's not the people who are away on leisure, Simi. It's that there is no um, solution at the moment or exemption for anyone seeking medical treatment outside of Canada that they can't get here. Okay, that nothing, makes sense, yeah. Nothing for unaccompanied uh, minors. There's no sustainable solution for international students who have no money and working uh, people on working visas coming to work here um, as well people who are vax double vaccinated so for those people there's still no exemptions to this and hopefully they will address it um, I I don't know how long this will go on if it goes on for months they should come up with an online solution to make this simple to book there should also be this information listed in a grid format on their website but it, it seems like it's just um uh, it's being updated it's a moving it's, right. a, it's in progress <laughs> now claire it sounds to me like you should be getting some kind of payment from the federal government because you seem to be answering a lot of the questions that they should be answering <laughs> Well, I wish, I wish, um, they, it was up on their website, but I actually went through the process myself because I have so many people asking these questions. We actually have one of our agents booking someone, a Canadian citizen coming off of a Texas oil rig and he's Canadian. He needs to get back here. It's not because she's booking, she's booked somebody who's, you know, gone off and sat in the sun for a week. And we don't, we haven't been doing that, but we are getting the questions from people who now do need to get back or are stuck with passport issues or they were, you know, it, it, there's so many different yeah. scenarios. So did yeah. you, do you think a lot of people came back ahead of this? There's no question in my mind. We booked a lot of people who never booked with us um, at the beginning, but from Hawaii, from Florida, from the Caribbean, Costa Rica, Mexico, um, Arizona, California. Yeah, we booked a lot of people in the past couple of weeks while when we got this information. So we've only known for about two weeks when this hard deadline came yeah. in. Um, and we don't know how long it's going to stay in place for. I know that there are some snowbirds waiting. There are people trying to do this loophole. And I think it's going to be closed up, quite frankly, Simi. It's the, the one? one that pe people, um, if you're a Canadian citizen or a PR, you can still cross at land borders. I mean, you can't just willy-nilly freely go into the U.S. or you can't come back um, unless you're a Canadian citizen. And they can't deny you crossing. So people are flying into, say, Seattle or 
Bellingham, getting transportation to the land border, walking across, and someone's leaving a, a car for them. I've right. heard that. But I, uh, it's that, my understanding that now applies too. They're just working on that, right? They're getting that into the well, whole system. What they've got as of last Monday, the 15th, people can cross as long as they've had a PR, uh, PCR test done no later than 72 hours prior or that they've sh- proven that they've had COVID-19. So a document stating that they've had COVID-19 between 14 days and 90 days prior to them crossing. So just basically proving that they've had it and recovered. So yeah, it's um, whether that la- that land border you know, the, basically they're trying to avoid the, the mandatory hotel quarantine because it's so expensive. It really is. Like, I don't understand. Like, I, it's, this is such a tough situation, right? Because on the one hand, you're saying, you're thinking, well, the rest of us haven't traveled. So, yes. you know, all that. And so, but the medical exemption is the one that I do have sympathy for because if people have traveled for medical reasons, I feel like that's a little bit different. Yeah. And also for the people, the, the international students who have been, you know, maybe they're, tra- they're studying in Scotland or in Belgium or somewhere and they, they, they need to come home. They, yeah. they, they're scheduled to come home after their exams at the end of April. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. I'm sure no end of phone calls uh, for you, Claire. <laughs> no, so thanks so much. Sure. Thank thanks you. to me. Bye-bye. That's Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Of course, you can reach her at Travel Best Bets. But yeah, new travel restrictions coming into effect today. I'm just going to repeat that 1-800 number that she just gave us there. That's the one that you have to call to make a reservation for this quarantine. It's one 800 294 8253.